Section 14 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 7, Chapter 1, Part 3. In the medieval inquisition it may be said that acquittal was virtually prohibited. A sentence of not proven might possibly be rendered, but acquittal was an admission of fallibility, and was regarded as a bar to subsequent proceedings in case further evidence was obtained. This principle was maintained in the Roman inquisition, although in the eighteenth century exception was made in cases where the adverse evidence was clearly proved to be fraudulent. The Spanish Holy Office was not quite so sensitive, and had no hesitation as to repeated prosecutions, so that to it acquittal was a less serious matter. Moreover, while sentences of not proven were not unknown, there was an equivalent device by which the accused could be dismissed without admitting his innocence, suspending the case and discharging him, subject to the liability of its being reopened at any time. The furious zeal of Torquemada rendered acquittal peculiarly distasteful to him, as we have seen above, volume 1, page 175, a case in which he set aside acquittals at Medina del Campo, and insisted on conviction, although, at his instance, the parties had been tried twice and had been tortured without confession. This temper on his part could not but impress itself on his subordinates, and yet we occasionally meet with acquittals in this early time. Acquittals, however, which manifest a strange mental confusion, and betray the unwillingness to admit the prosecution of the innocent, for they couple acquittal with punishment. Thus at Guadalupe, in 1485, in the case of Andres Alonso of Trojiano, the sentence recites that the fiscal had not proved his accusation as fully as he ought, wherefore the inquisitors absolved the accused, but, as the evidence aroused some suspicion in their hearts, for the satisfaction of their consciences and his, they sentenced him to abjure de levi, and, as some infamy had accrued to him from the accusation, they removed it and restored him to his former good repute, and lifted the sequestration on his property. Whereupon he duly abjured de levi, renouncing all manner of heresy, and especially that of which he was accused, promising to be always obedient to the church, after which he was absolved ad cautelam from any excommunication which he might have incurred, and of all this he asked to have a certificate. All the acquittals that I have met of this period bear this illogical character, sometimes even requiring abjuration de vehementi, and inflicting penalties for the offence of which the accused is pronounced innocent. In Barcelona, the Inquisition had been established twelve years before the first acquittal was granted, and, from such record as we have, it would appear that there were acquittals of more than one kind, conditional and unconditional. Thus, in 1499, Jaime Castañe and Ufrosnia Pometa were acquitted, but were required to abjure publicly on May 2nd, and on October 5th, Luis Palau was acquitted. 
In 1500, on September 18th, four women were acquitted absolutely, two men were acquitted with penance, and two women and a man were acquitted with abjuration. Then, on October 5th, the memory and fame of Juan de Ribes Altes were cleared, and on December 20, 1501, Blanquina Darla was acquitted absolutely. In a record of the Toledo Tribunal, from 1484 to 1531, there are 86 cases of acquittal, or an average of somewhat less than two per annum, which, in view of the intense activity of the earlier period, indicates how few escaped when once the Inquisition had laid its hand upon them. Some of these cases show how long the conditional acquittal persisted. Thus of those acquitted, Hernando Parral was required to abjure, and Francisca Ramirez and Catalina Beata Negra abjured de vehementi. Unless there is a mistake by the scribe, Leonora de la Oliva, of Ciudad Real, was acquitted and scourged, October 3, 1521, and again had the same sentence, October 13, 1530. In 1520, Alonso Hernández was acquitted with public penance, and in 1513, Sancho de Ribera was acquitted with confiscation. One entry is difficult of comprehension. That of Inés González, who was voted to acquittal with reconciliation and confiscation, but the confiscation was remitted. Practically, acquittal amounted only to a sentence of not proven. In the formula for it, Pablo Garcia calls special attention to the omission of the word definitive, pointing out that it is not final, for the case could be reopened at any time that fresh evidence was obtained, and even without it, as we have seen in the case of Villanueva. In matters of faith there is no finality, no cosa juzgada, and it was so declared by Pius V in the bull Inter Multiplices, invalidating all letters of absolution and acquittal issued by inquisitors and other spiritual judges. In strict accordance with this principle was the rule that sentences of acquittal of the living were not to be read at the autos de fe, unless at their especial request, while acquittals of the dead were read. In either case, the sentence simply stated that he had been accused of heresy, and no details were given. If living, he did not appear at the auto, and if dead, there was no effigy. All this was in direct contradiction to the glowing eulogy of Paramo, who, as we have seen, states that the inquisitors used every means to prove the innocence of the accused, and, when they succeeded, took care that he should go forth like a conqueror, crowned with laurel and the palm of victory. Yet Paramo had some justification in the fact that there were rare exceptional cases in which the acquitted was thus honored. The only instance of this that I have met in Spain was that referred to above, volume 2, page 561, where fourteen residents of Cadiz were falsely accused. In Peru, however, several cases are recorded. In the Lima Auto of 1728, Dr. Agustin Valenciano appeared in the procession on a white horse, with a palm, and proclamation was made of his innocence. In the great auto of January 23, 1639, there were seven thus honored after their three years of incarceration, 
and in that of October 19, 1749, the effigy of Don Juan de Loyola, who had died in prison in 1745, headed the procession bearing a palm. This last case is perhaps explicable by Jesuit influence, for he was of the family of St. Ignatius, and further reparation was made by creating his brother, Don Ignacio de Loyola y Jaro, Aguacil mayor of the tribunal, while three nephews were made familiars. The reluctance of the tribunals to pronounce a sentence of acquittal is illustrated in the case of Francisco Marco, tried at Barcelona for bigamy in 1718. Unable to prove the charge, which was punishable with scourging and galleys, the tribunal sentenced him to have his sentence con meritos read in the audience chamber, to be reprimanded and threatened, and to be banished from Barcelona and Madrid for six years. In the earlier period this sentence would have stood, but by this time the Suprema was in full control, and it expressed great surprise at so unjust a decision, inflicting so foul a stigma on the accused. It declared null and void all the acts of the process, it ordered Marco to be discharged at once, and that the inquisitors should defray out of their salaries all the cost of his imprisonment. The indisposition to acquit found expression in the device known as suspension. When the effort to convict failed, the case could be suspended, thus leaving matters as they stood. The accused was neither acquitted nor convicted, the case could at any moment be reopened and prosecuted to the end, and it hung over the unfortunate victim while it saved the infallibility of the tribunal. The earliest allusion to it that I have met occurs in the instructions of 1498, which show that it was a usage already established and abused, for it is forbidden in prosecutions of the dead, except when further evidence is expected, and acquittal is ordered when the proof is imperfect, because there are many cases of suspension that inflict hardship through the sequestrations continuing in force. Suspension was a convenient resource for a tribunal, unable to convict, yet unwilling to acquit, and desirous to conceal its failure. At first it was comparatively rare, but in time it became a favorite method of escaping a decision, and, as it gradually, for the most part, replaced acquittal, in its development it might even remove the stigma. In the great majority of cases it was practically the end of the matter, and it was usually accompanied with lifting the sequestration. Some authorities held that a case could not be entered as suspended if there was enough in it to justify a reprimand, or even when the offense was trivial and the defendant was cautioned not to speak or act in that fashion, but this rigidity of definition was not observed in practice. When suspension was decided upon, the accused was not permitted to know it. He was simply brought into the audience chamber. If he had been confined in the secret prison, he was put through the customary inquiries as to what he had seen and heard, and was sworn to secrecy. He was told that for just reasons he was granted the favor of returning home, and that he must seek to discharge his conscience, for his case was still pending. This mystery served to keep him in suspense, but, after he found the sequestration or embargo lifted from his property, he could doubtless fathom its meaning. 
if he demanded a definite sentence of conviction or acquittal, he had the right to do so, but I have met with no instance of this, and few could have been hardy enough thus to tempt their fate. If he asked for a certificate that he was freely discharged, or that his case was suspended, it was not to be given, but the Suprema might grant him one to the effect that he was discharged without penance or condemnation. Suspension wholly without penance was, however, unusual, for the infallibility of the Inquisition was commonly emphasized by accompanying it with some infliction more or less severe. The lightest of these was the reprimand and warning administered when discharging the accused. In 1650, the Tribunal of Toledo summarily got rid of quite a number of cases in this fashion, four on June 18th, two on the 25th, and three on the 30th, and those were fortunate who escaped so lightly. About the same time, Doña Gabriela Ramírez de Guzmán, accused of superstitious sorcery, was not only reprimanded when her case was suspended, but was banished for a year from Toledo and Madrid, and the same penance was assigned to Domingo de Acuña when his trial for propositions was suspended. How little incongruity was recognized in this is illustrated by the case of Martin Mitrovich at Madrid in 1801, when one of the inquisitors voted to suspend the case and confine him for life in the hospital of Cueta. In fact, as suspension grew more frequent in the closing years of the Inquisition, it was often coupled with severe inflictions. Thus, August 30, 1815, the Tribunal of Urena suspended the case of Maria del Carmen Caballero y Berrocal, but sentenced her to reprimand, two hundred lashes, and three years' seclusion in a hospital. At the same time, in view of her ingenuous confession, the scourging was suspended until her amendment should earn its forgiveness, and the same phrases were used with her accomplice, Nicolas Sanchez Espinal, who was sentenced to reprimand certain spiritual exercises and perpetual exile from the province. In cases like these, however, suspension had somewhat outgrown its original purpose of a substitute for acquittal, and was a more than doubtful mercy, for the case remained unconcluded, though visited with full penalties, and could at any moment be reopened. That originally it was merely a convenient device for escaping the admission of having prosecuted the innocent, is manifested by cases of which the records are full. Thus, in 1607, Francisco Dendolea, a Morisco of Sea, was tried at Valencia on the evidence of a witness that, when Limosnero, or Almoner of Sea, he had, under pretext of begging for the poor, used his office to serve notices of the commencement of the fast of Ramadan, and give other ceremonial instructions. He proved that he never was Limosnero, and the charge fell to the ground, but the case was merely suspended. So, in 1653, Doña Isabel del Castillo was prosecuted for Judaism at Toledo. She had previously been reconciled at Valladolid, and it was found that the evidence related to a period prior to the reconciliation. She of course ought to have been acquitted, but the case was suspended. Even more self-evident is the case of the Benedictine Padre Francisco Salvador, tried at Valladolid in 1640, 
for sundry propositions presented in a competition for a professorship. The consulta de fe voted to suspend the case, and the Suprema, in confirming the sentence, added that a certificate should be given to him that no offence had been found that would in any way prejudice him. There was also a kind of imperfect or informal acquittal, which consisted in admitting the accused to bail at the end of the trial. It saved the tribunal from the trouble of a decision, and of an acknowledgment that the prosecution had been in error, but it was cruel to the party involved, as it left him but partly liberated and with the stigma of heresy. Its working is fairly exemplified by the case of Petronila de Lucena, tried in 1534, at Toledo, on a charge of Lutheranism. After nearly a year's incarceration, her brother, also under trial, revoked in the torture the evidence which he had given against her. There was no other testimony, yet she was not acquitted but merely released, March 20, 1535, under bail of a hundred thousand maravedis, to present herself when summoned. The security was furnished, and she was delivered to the bondsmen as her jailers. On June 27, she petitioned for release, for the discharge of the bondsmen, and for the removal of the sequestration, which included some articles of personal necessity in the hands of the jailer. She was, she pleaded, poor and an orphan. She needed the property, and wished to be free to dispose of herself. No notice was taken of this, and, sixteen months later, on October 20, 1536, she applied again. This time, an order to lift the sequestration was issued, but there is no record of her having been released from subjection to bail. She thus remained under the ban, and, at the age of twenty-five, the two careers open to a Spanish woman, marriage and the nunnery, were virtually closed to her. There was yet another kind of acquittal, still more informal, in which the accused was simply discharged and bade to be gone, without a sentence, leaving him under the dreadful uncertainty of what might be his position. An instance of this is the case of Miguel Mesquita, tried for Lutheranism at Valencia in 1536. The evidence was of the flimsiest, and the inquisitors merely ordered him to be released from prison without making further provision. The comparative frequency of these various forms of release, in the earlier period, may be inferred from the record of the Toledo Tribunal from 1484 to 1531, in which there are eighty-six cases of acquittal, to only four of suspension, four of release under bail, and two of simple discharge, the latter forms thus being negligible quantities. The proportions changed rapidly with time, showing how much more in harmony with the spirit of the institution were the forms which evaded acknowledgment of error. A record of the same tribunal, from 1575 to 1610, contains an aggregate of 1172 cases of all kinds, in which there were 51 acquittals, 98 suspensions, and 30 simple discharges. This tendency continued with increasing development. A Toledo record from 1648 to 1694 comprises 1,205 cases, of which but six ended in acquittal, one in discharge for mistaken identity, and a 104 in suspension, 
nearly all of the latter coupled with a reprimand in the audience chamber, apparently a scolding for having given the tribunal so much bootless trouble. The suspensions were, in nearly every case, ordered by the Suprema, as though the inquisitors shrank from the admission which it involved. This repugnance existed to the last. In 1806, Don Matias Bravo, an ex-agonizante and calificador of the Saragossa Tribunal, was tried in Madrid on the charge of uttering certain propositions. He was acquitted, but, in view of his disorderly life, especially in regard to the Sixth Commandment, he was sentenced to a reprimand, to fifteen days of spiritual exercises, and to make a general confession at such time as he could do so without disrepute. The same spirit is seen in the instructions of the Suprema, October 14, 1819, to the Cuenca Tribunal, authorizing the arrest and trial of Maria Martinez for propositions. In case, it says, the trial shows that she has not erred in the matters charged, or in anything else, she is to be reprimanded and warned, and told that the tribunal is keeping a watch over her acts. There was another kind of suspension, by far the most frequent of all. It often happened, especially in the latter periods, that the sumaria, or collection of evidence against a presumed offender, proved insufficient to justify prosecution. In such cases it would be quietly voted to suspension. It was filed away in its place among the records, ready to be exhumed at any time when further information might supply deficiencies and induce active proceedings. Thousands of these abortive processes reposed in the secreto of the tribunals, the subjects of which were unconscious of the dangers which had threatened them, or that their names were on the lists of suspects of the dreaded tribunal. That they were kept under surveillance is indicated by an occasional note, such as one respecting a certain Johann Wegelin, a Calvinist, quote, There is a sumaria which has been withdrawn because he became insane and returned to his own country, end quote. Or in another case, quote, suspended because he died in 1802, end quote. Yet, taking it as a whole, when we consider that the inquisitorial system was so framed as to put every temptation in the way of the judges to condemn, for the sake of confiscations, fines, penances, dispensations, and commutations, it is rather creditable that acquittals and suspensions should occur in the records even as frequently as we find them there, though of course we have no means of knowing whether those who thus escaped were among the wealthy or the poor. End of section 14